Lord our God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We tremble before your word and we tremble before your awesome power. We ask now for the ability to understand and I ask, Lord, for the ability to speak, to explain your awesome power and words to your people. We ask you to bless us, O Lord, and to teach us from your holy, perfect, infallible, and inspired word. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a young boy, kindergarten age or so, when my father was stationed in Norfolk, Virginia, in the Navy, we went it's near the beach. Navy bases are kind of near the water very often. And um, we went to the beach. And like I said, I was in kindergarten, you know, five, maybe six years old. And it was the first time I had actually, that I can recollect, venturing out into the, the waves, the surf. And I went out. And a wave came and squashed me. And I went under, was overwhelmed by the wave. Went under, I came up. Stood there, my father was just standing on the beach, as fathers would have done in the 60s, and just looked at me. And another wave hit me from the back. Overwhelmed me and pushed me, this time down, much farther in, onto the shale. And I got up, looked at him, turned around, and you know what's coming next. Another wave comes, smashes me, overwhelms me, drives me under, and at that point I get up and I cannot breathe. I am gurgling. There's salt water everywhere, and I feel in, in every part of my lungs. My father is still just standing there on the beach, kind of laughing at this point. Um, and another wave comes, and at this point, I'm pretty much at shore. So I can't drown. The wave just kind of pushes me up onto the very, very wet sand, and I wake up dazed and confused with a, a slight cut on my arm, you know, coughing up surf water. My father's laughing. And I said, my, I distinctly recall my mother saying, Ned, he's cut. Oh, I'm cut. I look over there. I'm overwhelmed by the sight of the blood running down my arm. That's just a little flesh wound, but it's just gushing out. My father says, that's no big deal. It's just a flesh cut. Go back in the water. The water will clean it. Makes sense. Salt water. So I go back in and what happens? Well, now I feel like my arm is on fire. Overwhelmed by the experience. Now my father knew that I was not going to drown. But to my five or six year old brain, I felt like I was being towed underwater and dragged for miles under that water. Obviously my father was not helicopter parent. <laughs> I'm not sure if I inherited that trait. Bit of a helicopter, I think, at times. The point of that little true tale is that as we're in this book of Ephesians, just beginning to get into it, and you know I've wanted to preach through Ephesians for many, many years. Many years. I've been planning this and thinking about it for a long time. I'm talking 10, 12 years thinking about it. I find myself utterly overwhelmed with chapter 1. Utterly overwhelmed. I feel literally every week that I am completely out of my depth. And I've read this book hundreds of times. 
over the course of my Christian life. I might even be in four figures with this book. I love it that much. But especially this first chapter and that one long sentence from chapter 3, uh, verse 3 through 14. Every week I go to it and I look at it and I say, Oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? There's so much there in those dozen verses or so. The entire book's only 3,000 words. I have a few hundred words in the first chapter. Because I feel, in my own human frailty, overwhelmed by the glory of the text. Overwhelmed by the majesty of what is contained there. What you have just in those verses is truly enough to educate one in all of the basics of Christianity and then even another level above that. And I look at it and part of the challenge of preaching is not what do I say, but what do I not say? What do I leave out? What do I cut? And one of the things I think that has certainly underwhelmed the modern Christian church, particularly our, 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 our denomination, is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We don't talk about him that much, do we? And there's good reason for it. He's the most mysterious member of the Trinity. We confess the Trinity like all Christians. We confess it. We believe it. We do not dare explain it because there is nothing that we can compare it to. When we define things, we have to use other things to compare them to. Well, what's a motorcycle, Dad? Well, it's kind of like a bicycle, but it has a motor like a car, and it goes much faster than a bicycle. You make a comparison. What can you possibly compare the Trinity to? Nothing. Do not try. You'll end up in heresy. Now, the Father is very revealed. Old and New Testament. Powerful, sovereign. The Son is the revelation of God. When we look to Christ, we see what God wants us to know about Himself. When we look to Christ, we see what God wants us to know about humanity. Now, what about the Spirit? He's mysterious. Jesus compares him to the wind. Can you explain where the wind comes from? Well, it's coming from the east. Have you ever been out in a field and the wind changed? You're at a campfire and you're upwind from it, and then all of a sudden you're, you're downwind, and you know the experience changes. So it is with the spirit. And they say the spirit moves in mysterious ways. What a cliche that is. It's a cliche because it is true. He is indeed the most mysterious person in the divine Godhead. Now, there's this very popular preacher on the West Coast named Francis Chan. He has some good things to say and some very unusual things to say. One of his most recent books is called The Forgotten God, about the Holy Spirit. Sounds good, right? Good title or bad title? Bad title. He probably didn't pick the title. It was probably the editor. Because it's dramatic. It's not a forgotten God. If he's a forgotten God, then we believe in three gods. We don't. 
We believe in one God in three persons. The Holy Spirit isn't a forgotten God. He is, however, to many of us, the forgotten person in the Trinity. But here's what I want us to understand today is that without the Holy Spirit, you're not only going nowhere fast, you're going backwards. Any spiritual power you have in your life, any understanding you have, that parable of the minas that we just read, any way that you are able to steward the talents and gifts that God has given you in this world is from the influence and power of the Holy Spirit. You see, there are two ways of looking at God. Okay? You can look at Him in His eternal essence. One God in three persons, forever and ever, from all eternity, never to end. You can say that, you can grasp it, but you cannot explain and define it. Okay? Do you know why? Because you weren't there. I wasn't there. However, when we come to the scriptures, we do see what we call the economic trinity. It's a fancy way of saying we see the persons of the trinity doing specific things in the history of the salvation of God's people. That's what helps us to understand. And in the early part of the book of Ephesians... We can read it by so quickly, it overwhelms us with this Trinitarian theology. And it's very, very clear that we are predestined and elected by the Father to be holy and blameless in His sight. We went over that a few weeks ago. Think of that. To be holy and blameless in the sight of God. That should be the entire goal of your life. To be holy and blameless before God. Because what happens if you enter God's presence and you are not holy and you are not blameless in His sight? What will be the end of that encounter? Judgment, pain, condemnation, and death. But the text also says that God has made us accepted to Him in the Beloved. He's made us accepted in Christ. Because Christ He found, He judged Christ unacceptable on that cross. He judged His Son to be unacceptable because He placed our sins and our debts and our iniquities and our transgressions on Him and into Him. And the Scriptures say that Christ became sin. We are accepted in the blood because Christ was made unacceptable by our filthiness and our sin. Now that's Christianity 101. How do you know those things? You know those things not because I've told you them. Not because uh, I'm looking at some of you who have been here for a while. Uh, not because Reverend Bean told you them. Um, some of you have been here even a little longer. Reverend Martin, who, who, who built this, who built this pulpit by hand. Because he told you them. I think that's about as far back as I can go. I think Reverend Martin's as back as I can go now. When I first got here, I could have gone back to uh, Reverend Swain, and believe it or not, even Dr. Dr. Lamont. Dorothy Krupp used to tell me about him and her childhood. I was like, wow, that was a long time ago. He was pastor here from 1916 to like 1924, 1920. That was a long time ago. 
It's not because any of us have told you. It's not even because it's in the Bible and we've told you it's in the Bible. It's because the Holy Spirit has convinced you that what we're saying is true. You see? You believe because you're saying, well, he's preaching from the Bible. Which means, well, I believe what the Bible says is true. Some of it I can't understand, but I believe it to be true. The only way you can even say that is because the Holy Spirit has convinced you in your heart that this is the Word of God. How do we know that? Well, do you know who people who, who laugh at this book? Who believe that it's a, a, a fiction, a, a fairy tale, a deception even. A deception. And if it is a deception, it's the greatest con game the world has ever seen. And the disciples who wrote it were self-deceived. You see, you can die for a lie that you believe to be true, but if you're the one who created the lie and you die, then you're absolutely nuts. And you can find one kook in a room. But to find a dozen or so that have written the New Testament, to judge them all insane is beyond plausible. It makes no sense whatsoever. People say, well, people die for for lies all the time. Yes, but they didn't create them. There are many false religions that people are willing to die for, but they did not create the religion. The writers of the New Testament, if this is a lie, then Paul's out of his mind. What did Paul have to gain? Paul's life was going really, really well when he was on the road to Damascus. He was the chief priest's hitman. Must have been given some money for his travels. He was a well-thought-of Pharisee. He was moving up the ranks in Judaism very, very quickly. Things are going well. Why would all of a sudden he change horses in midstream and start to preach exactly the opposite of what he was making his living and his reputation on? That would be called nuts. They say, Paul made up Christianity. Well, if so, then he really was the most insane person that ever walked the earth. Because he went from rising high to beatings, shipwreck, imprisonment, and eventual beheading. All for a lie that he knew he created. That's crazy. It was the Holy Spirit who changed him. And what I'd like to do today is just to discuss a little bit about who and what the Holy Spirit does. Because at the end of um, my sermon last week, in verses 13 and 14, we read these words. In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed you, were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory? The Holy Spirit is the one who convinces us of the truth. Now, the first thing we have to understand is that the Holy Spirit is God. He's divine. How do we know that? Well, the Bible tells us. The Great Commission, Matthew 28 Go ye therefore, and what? Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Familiar benediction from 2 Corinthians 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Later in the book of Ephesians in chapter 4, which we're going to get to in a few months, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And finally in 2 Corinthians 3, but whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. This is the veil of misunderstanding. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit is divine. The Holy Spirit is divine. Now the Holy Spirit has a number of names. He's called the Spirit of God. He's called the Spirit of Christ. He's called the Spirit of your Father. He's called the Spirit of Truth. He was there in the beginning, in creation. Read the opening verses of Genesis. The Spirit is hovering. That's what the Spirit does. He seems to hover. I know they have those hoverboards now. Nothing to do with them. I have no idea what they do. They look crazy, and they're expensive. But the Spirit seems to hover. You see, when we look to Christ, and that's why Christ is, is so important. All the persons are important, but when we need the deepest understanding, the Spirit turns us not to Himself. This is where some people go, go, go astray. Do you have the gifts of the Spirit? Do you have the baptism of the Spirit, they'll say. Yeah, I do. Yes, I do. It happened when I got saved. Do you have Christ? You see, on Judgment Day, the question isn't going to be, did you have the gifts of the Spirit? Did you have the Holy Spirit? The answer is going to, that question is going to be, did you trust Christ? Did you have Christ? Because if you have Christ, that means the Spirit has turned your heart to Christ. That's the Spirit's primary job, is to reflect us back, to push us back to Christ. Listen to me very carefully. The Holy Spirit is absolutely and utterly content with hearing you praise the name of Jesus Christ. In the upper room discourse found in John 13, 14, 15, 16, part of 17, He's called the Comforter. He tells the disciples, I am going to send the Comforter who will guide you into all truth. Earlier in John, Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. We all know that one, right? We even say it to our kids. I just told you the truth. The truth is now set you free. You're free to go to your room and not come out till dinner. The Spirit is the teacher. 
Remember, in Corinthians, the church is called the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus' name itself, Emmanuel, in Hebrew means literally God with us. What does that mean, God with us? Where is Jesus now? You can, you can call it out this time. Right hand of the God, Father Almighty. See, we can do that call and response. It's got to get a rhythm. Yeah. He is in a particular place. Why? Because he's fully God, but he's fully man. We celebrated the Lord's Supper last week. Jesus' body was not in the bread. Jesus' blood was not in the fruit of the vine. It was not there. Jesus' body was one place. When Christ became man, he took on the limitations of means being in one place at one time. Yes, I know, you can go down to West Virginia and somewhere put your foot over the line and be in both Pennsylvania and West Virginia, but that doesn't really count. Okay, You can only stretch out about a yard or so. You can't stay in Pennsylvania and hop to South Carolina on your own. That's a bit more than a yard. Jesus took on that limitation. The Spirit, however, has no limitation. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Spirit calls us and pushes into our memory what Christ has done for us. That's why we can say, yes, Christ is present in the Lord's Supper through the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit who He sent. In the Nicene Creed, which is in the farther back of your hymnal, which we use on Sunday evenings, and many of us know it from other traditions, the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Spirit has been sent to be our teacher, to be our guide. He is the one who inspired the writers of the Scriptures. When we say it's inspired, we mean it's exhaled by God, which means it's wind. And I think I've told you this before. In the Hebrew language, the same word for breath and the word for spirit is exactly the same. Ruah. Ruah, actually. Guttural. The word is exhaled from God. Holy men of old were inspired as they were moved by the Spirit. That's why we can trust what it says. Outside of the fact that it just fits perfectly together, there are no contradictions. There are things that look like they're contradictions, but they are easily explained with a little bit of study. But that's something you'll hear people say. Oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. Here's what you say the next time they say that. Can you name me three? They might be able to give you one. But hit them high. Highball them. Give me three. Can you give me three, please? No? Can can you give me two? Going once, going twice, can you give me one? Most people won't won't be able to even even say, Hamana, Hamana, Hamana. They won't even be able to name the books of the Bible, and yet they're going to say, the Bible's filled with contradictions. Really, do you know? Can you name the books of the Bible for me, please? you? It's actually not that important to name them. Do you read them? If this is God's inspired word, and if it's here that we, that we get the, the knowledge, 
And the Spirit gives us this knowledge. And the Spirit, the reason why many of us, myself included, why we live weakened Christian lives is because we're not walking in the Spirit, as Paul says later in Ephesians. You're either walking in the Spirit or walking in the flesh. What does that mean? Very simply. It means that we're allowing the Holy Spirit to control our thoughts. That we're trying to think God's thoughts after Him. And the only way we can do that is by letting this Word infiltrate our very brains. The Spirit is truth. Where the Spirit is not, you have the opposite. You have lies. Who's the father of lies? The shaitan, the Satan, the Antichrist. He is the father of all lies. He's been a liar from the beginning and a murderer and a robber and a thief. Jesus says, I have come to give them life and give them life more abundantly. And that life is given to us through the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you believe the gospel today, it is not because you believed. It's because the Holy Spirit convinced you and gave you a new heart and gave you the rebirth, rebore you. And if you're growing as a Christian, it's not because you're working real hard. We're all called to work hard. And if you feel like if God's been giving you 10 minus, and listen to me real carefully, a little challenge here. Some of you have been given 10 minus and you're walking around thinking God gave you three. If you're wondering if you're on my little list, just give me a buzz this week and I'll tell you. Most of us have been given more minus than we think. Most of us have been given more minus than we think. We've been given more gifts and more responsibilities than we're willing to accept. Why? Not because it's hard work. And it will kill you if you try and do it in your own flesh. You need to pray for your ruling elders and your deacons, and it would help if you pray for your pastor as well. If I try and fulfill my ministry in my own powers, I'll be crushed. I'll be done in three months. That will be a long time. I know pastors who have tried to do it in their own power, who have felt driven in their ministries, as opposed to called by the Spirit. And when you're driven, you're pushed from behind. And eventually you get pushed into the ground like those waves pushed me into the, into the, into the shale on Virginia Beach. But if you're called, the Spirit's calling you from outside and you're, you're listening to the voice of the Good Shepherd through the power of the Spirit and you're following Him. It's a very different dynamic. If you're feeling weak in the Christian life, I can guarantee you it's most likely because you're trying to live the Christian life in the flesh, not relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. It's hard being a Christian. It's hard being a Christian parent. It's hard being faithful to the gospel. It's hard saying no to the world and all its glittering entertainments. It is hard. The Spirit never told us that it was going to be easy. As a matter of fact, He told us it was going to be hard. Earlier in the book of Acts, a prophet is told to tell Paul the things that are going to happen to him. And he says these chilling words, because I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul had a good time of it, didn't he? Real good life. Imprisonment, beating, flogging, beaten with rods, and eventually thrown into a dungeon and beheaded. 
God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You're going to end up beheaded. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit's a great gift. He's a great gift. Your very body, He resides in you. This week, I want you to just think about that. Wherever you go, the Spirit is in you, burning. Trying to burn out the sin in our lives and light our minds on fire with the power of Christ. If we all do that together, then just like those 12 semi-illiterate men, we can set the world on fire. May God give us the grace to do so. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for the gift of your spirit. And we ask that this week, you would help us to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. In Jesus' name.